Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode, the season one finale of Story of My Life, the podcast that asks guests over 70 how they came to be who they are and where they are. I'm Lindsay Alexander, and I do the asking. Story of My Life aims to introduce you to all kinds of people who have lived a lot and share a lot. I believe one of the best gifts a person can give is to truly listen to another. So thank you for tuning in and for listening. I'm Charlotte Reeder. I was Charlotte Knapp, and I was born in Ogdensburg, New York, and that's up on the St. Lawrence River, and my mother said it was the coldest place on earth. (laughs) I left there when I was about six months old, and my parents came and moved to Lexington, Kentucky, and where my dad taught at the university, taught political science and history at the university here. And I grew up here in Lexington. I've spent my whole life here, and I'm now 90. As a writer, I spend many of my work days at home, and true to stereotype, in gym clothes and with unbrushed hair. So imagine my immense excitement turning to concern after booking an interview with Charlotte Reeder, a former SEC cheerleader. I managed to find non-expired lipstick and expired mascara in the bottom of a toiletries bag and drove to Lexington. As a born and bred Louisville Cardinal basketball fan, it pains me to admit I even made sure to wear a royal blue shirt. Call me a turn shirt, not a turncoat. I meet Charlotte at her job at the gift shop at the Kentucky Horse Park. She's 90, as she said, and works full-time here. I feel, I must also confess, that I sat through the interview while she stood the whole time. Immediately, Charlotte puts me at ease. She's lively, smiling, pretty, but in a no-frills way. She's assuring me... And that's kind of put my life, I just don't know of anything else. But I don't believe her. Firstly, her nickname is Sharky. How did you get the nickname Sharky? (laughs) I think (laughs) it came kind of in two different ways. We had a pool table in our basement. And I was pretty good for for my age and my size. So I was a pool shark. No, and then Charlotte just kind of came sharky, it, and I was supposed to have been a, I was supposed to have been a Charles, mm. but so I was a disappointment from the beginning, but um, I became a Charlotte instead of a Charles, and um, so but I think it it's probably it was kind of sharky was just kind of, I I don't know it just evolved. And just the people that knew me in school, I think, are the ones that call me Sharky anymore. They're the ones that I knew in college and in high school, because I've been Charlotte when I work. Very few of the people that I work with would know who Sharky was. (laughs) They might be able to figure it out. They (laughs) might, but I I don't know. (laughs) Isn't modesty part of any good hustle? Could you talk about your upbringing, what it was like growing up here, and, and what you were like? I grew up in a really, I thought it was a really good time. We didn't have to worry about when we went out to play. We didn't have to stay within sight of everybody. It was it was an easier time to raise children, I'm sure, because we had good times. We, I 
I was an outdoor person. And I, if I had chores I had to do inside, such as I mopped the kitchen floor and I scrubbed the bathtub, but I got through those chores in a hurry so I could get out <laughs> and play. And we had um, we had uh, a good neighborhood with, but it was mostly boys. So we played football, and we play and we shot baskets. Basketball. If you live in Lexington, you have to be a basketball fan. Um, we rode bicycles, and and it was a fun time to grow up. And I went to the university training school because that it was connected with the university, and that's I went there first grade through the tenth grade, and then at that time, um, my parents moved to Kent, Ohio, where my dad was teaching. And I stayed here, and I, I lived with the neighbors for two years to finish high school. And um, I went to the county school then instead of the university. And I really enjoyed it there. I, had, um, I was a cheerleader for two years, and I, was, I felt like I was really lucky just being a two-year student there that, <laughs> that I was in as many activities as I was. And I graduated in 1944 and went on to the university the, the next semester when it started. That's the University of Kentucky. The four years that I was in college, they were a quarter system instead of the semester oh, okay. system because of the war, war, World War II. And there was an awful lot of women on the campus and not too many men. So we didn't do a whole lot of dating and dancing and partying, but it was a good time, and it was a very patriotic time. Most of the men had, they got old enough to enlist, they enlisted. And and we did scrap and battle drives. Everything was geared toward war. And, and even that, although it was sad to see people go and some of them didn't come back, it was, it was an interesting and kind of a historic time to, to grow up. Yeah. You talked about how the war affected the, the college campus, there's scrap drives instead of maybe baked good drives like we'd have now, or um, or there's not that many men around. No. Can you talk about what it was like being young during World War II, and, and especially in terms of college campus? I don't know how to explain it, except uh, if you've read uh, Brokaw's book about the great generation, mm. it, it was a great generation. I mean, people, everybody was had a, a purpose they were they were war uh oriented you know we we did we sold bonds we bought bonds <laughs> we we uh went to the uso and danced with soldiers and i belonged to a sorority and i enjoyed it but it wasn't the, it wasn't the main part of my life i i, I kept in touch with some of the girls i roomed with at the university. I lived in the uh, sorority house for two years, and my grades weren't quite so good then. <laughs> but, but it was, and I'm glad I did it. You know, it, it was something that um, was, and it was fun, and there was this things that we did that were, but most of it was not giddy stuff. When, when the soldiers started coming back, and it changed the campus overnight. Because there were, and then there was hundreds, there was men, and they were had 
classes that were overcrowded and they had housing that was <laughs> unavailable. <laughs> Uh, and, and the men were older, and I met maybe not in years, but in experience. Mm -hmm. And it, it was uh, it was different, um, not bad, but just different. I don't know how to explain it exactly, but it went from being a mostly girls' school to overrun with boys, and they were mostly not boys anymore. They were men. Yeah. And uh, it, it changed the way we looked at the world, I think. It, would, it, it, it was not, um, it wasn't the playground. But uh, it might have started, you know, we might have thought about it as being that, but it wasn't. I, I, I don't know, other than the fact that it was crowded and that it was um, more serious, and um, the ones that came back from the GI and were going on the GI Bill, some of them were not prepared for college. They didn't finish high school and were taking oh, they were take course. they were taking preparatory classes, and some of them just weren't well. They weren't college ready, mm -hmm. and wasn't there, it wasn't that they weren't just as smart. They just they just quit when they could when they could enlist. And, and if their parents would sign that they, you know, at 17 they could go in the, and, and they were really little boys. They were boys. Yeah. And when they came back, they weren't. So it was, it was a different atmosphere. Yeah. And it was in this atmosphere that Charlotte was growing up. She was an active student. At www.storyofmylifepod.com, you can see her many yearbook photos from the UK archives. I asked her about cheerleading for that most terrifying of fan bases. Ugh. Big Blue Nation. I was a cheerleader at, the, at uh, in junior high at the training school. Mm -hmm. And when I went to Lafayette, I was a cheerleader those two years that I was there. And then uh, when I went on to the university, I just thought, well, heck, why not? So I was a cheerleader at the university for two years. And it really was, um, it was a time when, uh, it was wartime, and we didn't travel much, so we didn't travel with the team. And and the, um, it was um, it was fun while it lasted, and then it didn't. I mean, yeah, things changed. Instead of the, they had a student union pep club that had been the ones who picked the cheerleaders, and they had uh, everybody tried out. Everybody in the Everybody that wanted to be a cheerleader tried that, and I didn't make it, but that was all right too. I, you know, it was um, it was fun while it lasted, and that was it. So, but it wasn't as we didn't do the things that they do now. We didn't do. Uh, they didn't throw me up in the air. Oh, okay. If, if they'd have thrown me up in the air, there nobody would wanted to catch me. <laughs> <laughs> it was just not. We we did. Maybe a cartwheel now and then. Okay. <laughs> but it wasn't really not what the cheerleading is okay. today. That's, do you remember any of the cheers? And maybe talk a little bit more about how things were different between cheerleading then versus what we see when we watch the games on television now. Oh, it's choreographed now. I mean, you know, they do they do fantastic things, and they're great to watch. But we weren't like that. We just had enthusiasm <laughs> <laughs> when they 
played the flight fight song while we led the singing, and I have I I couldn't sing in the bathtub, so <laughs> <laughs> it was good that they drowned us out. And um, but it was um, it was it was entirely different, you know. And the Dina women didn't want us to wear anything that was provocative, so we we had we had skirts down to our knees, and and we it was just it was quite tame compared to now and and these girls get scholarships you know we we got a sweater (laughs) (laughs) and and I had that sweater until the moths got it (laughs) but um, I guess it's better now but I'm not sure that it's 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 the same enthusiasm and I, I I don't think you get the enthusiasm from the crowd I think you know that that you used to get but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It was fun. I guess maybe you get a little older. I mean, your freshman and your sophomore year, you're kind of young and giddy. You get a little older, and you're a little more, I don't know, not quite as jubilant about things. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it was different. And I graduated from the university in 1948 had a degree in something that was <laughs> did me no good whatsoever. What was it? Phys ed. <laughs> I was a PE major, and I uh, took all of the education co- I took all of the PE courses and none of the education courses. So I did not have a teacher's certificate, but I didn't want to teach. Mm. I came from a long time tar- teachers on both my mother's side of the family and my dad's side of the family, and I decided I didn't want to be a teacher. So I didn't take anything that was practical. I worked in a drugstore after I got out of college, and I was dating the young guy that I later married. He was a year year behind me in school at the university because he had enlisted in the Navy. Okay. I'm interested. So you were in college, met this guy, get married, start oh, a family, I, and working. I knew him in high school. Oh, okay. Well, well let's go back to that. Sure. When, when I was in high school in at Lafayette, um, I'd, there was four of us, and we double-dated. And one of them was my future husband, and one was the guy I was dating at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I dated, um, uh, his name was Alfred, and I dated him for about two years. And uh, Bob, my husband, dated June and for about a year or so, and and Bob was always the one that could get a car, and he always worked, and he always had money, and I don't think my dad ever paid for anything or got his <laughs> In two years? <laughs> In two years, I don't think. <laughs> Bob was always the first one to get his hand in his pocket and, and pay for everything. So um, then they, and that was before they went in the service, and both of them were in the service. Both of them were in the Navy, I think. But um, and when they came back from the service, one of my friends wanted to date, had a, had a date with one of my friends, and he didn't have a car, so he knew Bob would be able to get his car. <laughs> so he talked to me into asking me to go out. So I went out with Bob. And it was uh, Dean Stanton, and he was, he's a movie 
actor. He always did. He seemed to die in every one of his Western movies. <laughs> that he, but but he was he graduated from high school with us, and, oh, okay. he, and he wanted to date with this girl, and he didn't have any transportation. So that's how I started dating my future husband. Yeah, that's right. The bum without a car was Harry Dean Stanton, the character actor in about a zillion films, from Alien to Repo Man to Cool Hand Luke, friend of Sam Shepard, stage sharer with Bob Dylan. He helped launch Chris Christopherson's career, and now we know Harry Dean Stanton can also be credited with another so-called minor role in at least one wedding. We dated before he went in the Navy, and then when he came back, we started dating again. And uh, we, we dated for about five years before we married, but that was... And he, the girl that he had been dating married the guy I had been dating. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, but that didn't last. I think she had three or four husbands, but I only just had one. Just one. But that <laughs> was enough. <laughs> we um, waited till he was through college, which was about a year and a half after I had graduated, and... Married in May of 1950 and started a family and about two and a half years later. The reader's first child, a son, was born with intellectual and physical disabilities. And uh, he was a real blessing, but not because, because of, of his disposition. He was a very easy child to raise because he, he loved everybody and thought everybody loved him. And they did because he was happy, and uh, in spite of the fact that there were things that he was... Uh, well, he did a whole lot more than, than anybody thought he would do. Hmm. What uh, was his name? His name was Robert Osborne Reader. Osborne was my mother's maiden name, and his dad's name was Robert. But we always called him Punkin. He was, <laughs> he was born on Halloween, <laughs> so he was Punkin to his family all his life. Three years after he came along, we had a daughter. She was um, Mary Evelyn, but I think she was born talking and walking, and <laughs> and she helped raise Punkin, too. Cause, oh, wow. Uh, uh, Punkin was not supposed to ever be able to do anything, but he did the best he could with what he had. He went to um, school for the—he started in a trainable class. He went on to— a educable class, and um, he learned to read on a fifth grade level, which a lot of grown-ups don't. Yeah. And he learned to add and subtract and multiply, but he never could get division. And um, he um, wrote little stories on his, on his typewriter. He had a cleft palate, and he had a, a heart problem, and he didn't walk until he was about three years old. But he he just did things as he could, and he did well when he did them. <laughs> and um, then we had uh, along comes Dick. He is two years younger <laughs> than Dutton. We called Dutton because uh, Punkin named her Dutton. He couldn't <laughs> he couldn't say sister. Well, we found out that that was his word for babies. Oh, so that's how she came to be Dutton. She after we had already used that name on her forever. We found that other babies were Duttons. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, um, he went to speech school and got to where he could talk really quite well. 
but you still he had pro uh, some problems with people that if he got in a hurry to say something then they might not understand him he could type, talk better on the telephone <laughs> than face face to face um, he lived to be 25 years old and they expected we'd never bring him home from the hospital so we were very fortunate in having him as long as we did um, Dick was uh, two years younger than Dutton and I thought that was great three that that was a good family and then what <laughs> seven years later here comes Tim <laughs> and, and I thought wow I wasn't really overjoyed but he's been a joy so uh, we raised the four kids and I was at home mom until all of the kids were in school and then I, I took a little job in a gift shop and I worked it in the neighborhood gift shop for about five years actually when it sold to a different company I wasn't too thrilled with it so I I quit mm -hmm. and uh, then the uh, horse park was coming into being and that was back in 1977-78 and a, an acquaintance of mine knew I'd worked in a gift shop and she said would you be interested in working in the gift shop so I said, yeah, I would. So long about August of 1978, I started working at the gift shop in the horse, at the horse park. I've been there ever since, and I'm still here. The people I work with are like family, and I enjoy it, and it's a good place to work. It wouldn't work for everybody. You know, everybody wouldn't want to do that, but, but I have enjoyed it. I really haven't done anything flashy <laughs> in my life. I've just had a good life. And uh, I don't think I'd do anything different if I had to do it over again. And I don't know what else to tell you. Okay, so you, you're married and you're working, but then you get pregnant with your first child and so you stop working. Um, what was it like to transition from working to being a stay-at-home mom? I was working at the drugstore and, um, and after Punkin was born, of course, that was a full-time, he was a full-time job. And so I, I quit working, and I didn't work again until, until actually until, um, until Tam was in school. So there was I, I went, to, I, I grew up, and went to school for twenty five years, and then I raised kids for twenty five years, and then I worked in the gift shop, and uh, and then I came out here and started working out here, and I've been here for thirty nine years. And I've enjoyed it, and I'm now 90, and um, I probably should retire, but I don't want to do housework, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm just staying till till my I don't want to drive this far, or I can't do it anymore. But uh, and I know I, my, my days are are not going to be as many as I've had, so. <laughs> It's um, it's been good for me, and I've got a son now that lives with me. Um, Dick lives with me. He's a bachelor, and uh, it makes it makes my other two children that are s still around uh, there. I think it's makes them feel like it's good because I have somebody that's in the house with me. But I don't I don't know whether he takes care of me or I take care of him. But it's <laughs> but it works out fine. We we get along good. And it wouldn't work for everybody.
it's not something I would recommend to everybody because, but what we do, it, and that's kind of put my life. I just don't know of anything else. I want to talk about pumpkin and, and also being a parent to a disabled child during the fifties and sixties. Now I feel like there's a lot available um, for education and things. What was the education like and and parenting like in that situation? When Pumpkin got to be six years old, he had to be in school, and he couldn't talk. I mean, he couldn't talk, so we knew what he wanted. If he wanted cookies, he asked for Dugans, and it was babies were Duttons, and he had words for things that didn't sound like what they were. So we took him to speech school over at the university where they had a, a speech teacher, and she said, well, he doesn't have any speech. And she worked with him for about two sessions, and she says, oh, he has a lot of speech. It just doesn't sound like yours. <laughs> so he, she got him with the bouncing ball, you know, and the things that they... T- they uh, uh, and pretty soon he was saying words that we knew what he... But he could point to something, and because he, you know, we he was special, we gave him whatever he pointed at if it was <laughs> something that wasn't going to hurt him, you know. And uh, and his he was always sweet and easy to deal with. The biggest worry was his health, because he did have a, a severe heart defect, and nothing that could be fixed because of the severity of it and the fact that it was, it was lungs and nervous system and everything was they probably maybe could do something for him now but they that was there was not much done with heart surgery back in the that would be in in the well in early 50s and uh, we had taken him to the uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital and they had thought they could operate on him and then they did angiograms on him they found that there was no surgery they could do and then uh, by by then, the Chandler Medical School had started here, and we had a doctor here, a Dr. Noonan, who was very, very good. And, and she was his doctor from the time he was about 12 years old till he died. Oh, wow. And, uh, and he was lived to be 25. I think I mentioned that before. He had a good sense of humor. He, we'd take him to the hospital when he had an emergency, and he'd be making the sound like a siren all the way to the hospital. <laughs> And uh, and he loved his barbershop uh, harmony. My husband was a barbershop singer, and so he had his record player, and he, he'd sit on the floor with his head on the record player and listen to barbershop harmony. He also liked Yogi Bear and and Yogi Augie Doggy, and he liked all the Disney characters. And he started to school. The Jewish women had um, uh, a school for trainable children and had a really lovely teacher who who she said um, she'd had him for about oh six months I guess and she says you know he's telling the other kids where they're supposed to sit because they have their names on the back of their chairs and she says I think that he ought to be in an educable class so we sent him to the class and he went to another school Meadowthorpe Elementary School and he was there with a really nice teacher and uh, she was, um, she said, oh, yeah, he's telling, he's telling me my, my lesson plan. So uh, he stayed there for a couple of years, and then he went to um, James Lane Allen, which is another school, so <laughs> he tried them all. 
<laughs> and and he was very fortunate in the ladies that worked with him were he learned something from all of them and finally he um he was in junior high school and he went to Tate's Creek Junior High School and had a nice teacher there and um he had a gym teacher there that he did not like because he wanted him to do things that he physically couldn't do and so he would say on Thursdays when he was supposed to go there He'd say he wasn't going to go to school. And we found out that was the reason he didn't want to go to school. This guy was the football coach and also, and he just didn't understand that Pumpkin couldn't do the things that he was asking him to do. Yeah. So we, we got him out of that situation. And uh, school was, he always liked school. And he, um, he learned a lot. And he had a typing teacher when he went to. After he was in junior high, he went to Lafayette Senior High. So he tried them oh, all. Wow, he did it all, yeah. And, and he had a teacher over there that um, let him take a typing course, and he loved his typewriter. That made it easier for him to write his stories. And uh, he was um, got to be 19, and there was no place else for him to go. He wasn't physically able to go to the sheltered workshop. He had a... One of the ladies at the medical centers said, uh, "Will you let's get him on this uh, aid to dependent children?" So he got seventy-five dollars a month, I think, and he thought that was his social security. <laughs> so that was his social security check. So he got to spend his social security, and uh, he was um, he 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 had a a really wry sense of humor that you. Because he was mostly around older people, other than and and these school kids that he was with when he was in the educable and the trainable kids, a lot of them were not really mentally handicapped as he was. They were environmentally handicapped, but they seemed to take care of him because they knew he couldn't do some of the things they could do, but he could do other things that they couldn't do. I, I don't know just any more that I could tell you about him, but he um, he uh, he didn't have any really. He liked to read U.S. News and World Report. <laughs> I don't know what he understood about it, but that was the magazine he really liked, and that and his um, Disney and and Hanna Barra and. Um, Barbara, and yeah, he uh, and he liked his books. He always liked his books. And if the kids, the other kids, got a hold of his books and got a pencil mark on it or not, that was bad. <laughs> that was bad. They were in the doghouse. So um, he was a joy t- to uh, to have in the household, and he was never um, a behavior problem. He was always uh, wanting to please. So, and that. I think was the reason he learned, because hmm. he, he really wanted to. That That's pretty much Pumpkin's life. And the other kids never seemed to resent the fact that there were a few things that we didn't get to do because he couldn't do them. We tried not to let that interfere, but occasionally it did. There were some vacations that you didn't take because Pumpkin couldn't do some of the physical things that you had to do if you went on a vacation like that. So... But yeah, he he was a he was a blessing. 
And we had him as long as we could have him. And uh, that's about all I can say about Pumpkin. That brings us to the lost arts and good advice portion of our podcast, in which our guests share a bit of their expertise. Today, Charlotte shares her advice on keeping a positive outlook. You seem to have a hold on a really positive attitude and just a good work ethic, obviously. I think it's unusual for people in my generation to hold down a job at the same company for more than a couple of years. And you've held a job here for almost 40 years. How do you keep and enjoy a job for a long time? Well, I think the reason I like this job is because of the people I do work with. And over the years, it's been a lot of different ones. And you like almost all of them, and they, but they're different. They're very different. And I think that you get up in the morning, you've got a purpose because you're going to work. Within the, last, within the last 10 years, it's nice to look forward to some kind of a trip. Uh, I, I don't know that there's anything, any advice I'd ever give anybody except that just don't ever sit down and think, oh, woe is me, because there's bound to be something in your life that is more interesting, and, and I think that, too, it, when you read, it, it broadens your outlook on, on and you know that you're not the only person in the world, and there's a lot of people that are, if you think something's bad, there's a whole lot of things that are worse, and, um, and things will get better. You know, if there's something that's really bugging you, there's, there's going to be something tomorrow that's going to be great. So I don't know that it's anything. I don't have any secrets of long life or happiness. or And nobody's going to be happy all the time. But uh, you can usually find a silver lining sooner or later. Sometimes it's later, but <laughs> it, it uh, you know, there's, uh, I'm just happy that, I've got three healthy kids, and I had one that wasn't, but that he was a happy kid. And um, it's just, uh, it's just, I look forward to uh, Christmas and Thanksgiving and when they come and visit, or and, and the trips that I've been taking have been really great in my uh, old, old age. <laughs> I don't like to say that. <laughs> What uh, you talked about how you really like it here. The fam- you feel like your uh, fellow colleagues or your family. Um, what does your job entail, and um, what do you like about it? You said it suits you, but it might not suit others. Well, I started out as a clerk in the store, and I've <laughs> been here all this time, and I'm still a clerk in the store. And we do whatever needs to be done. Uh, basically, I work a cash register. Uh, if we get new merchandise in, we put it out on the display. And if we get things in that need to be priced, we do pricing. If we, um, it's just uh, if the customer needs help, we try and help the customer. We've had a lot of di- I've had four different managers. Some are better than others, but they've all been fi- been all right. And my first one was great. 
and the last the one I have now is great. One of them I didn't get along with too well, but there wasn't any real friction. And then one of them that is um, that it, it, she said would friend you back to a good. They all of them would have been all right for next door neighbors, but one of them was not so good as a as a boss. And her, the reason I think she wasn't so good was because she was so much younger than I was. And I don't think she felt comfortable bossing somebody that was older and had been here longer than she had. Mm. But I think that was the reason that we really didn't jibe too well. But it wasn't anything that kept me from wanting to come to work. And um, most of the people that you wait on, I mean, I guess 95% of the people that are in here come in. Are they in a, on vacation? They're in a good mood? You don't get people bringing back things very long, unless, very often unless they're wrong size and they want to exchange it. Um, the um, you get to know them because you're with them. You're you with the people that you work with more than you are with family, and it's just uh, it's been good for me, and it gets me out of the house every day. And do you think that having a job when most of your contemporaries might be retiring or or sitting around? How does a sense of purpose or still having a sense of purpose of work drive you or does it? It doesn't drive me. I think the thing that drives me the most is I don't like housework. I'm not, a, I'm not, I don't like to shop. I work in a, I work in a gift shop, but I'm not a shopper. I'm, I'm, I'm not a gourmet cook and I um, don't play golf. I don't play cards. I, I just, um, I, I don't think there's anything that really drives me other than the fact that I I don't want to sit at home either. It's just, it's been good for me. Now, I don't know that it would be good for everybody, but it's been good for me, and I have been lucky as far as my health. Who are the most important people in your life now, and and why? Well, I think my kids, obviously, are the most important people that I, that I care the most about and I'm the most proudest of, and... And I do appreciate the people that I work with. When we come back, we'll talk to Charlotte about how she spends her time off the clock. At our website, www.storyofmylifepod.com, you can see photos of Charlotte on her many grand adventures, modeling horse park wear, and more. You'll also get her book recommendations. While you're there, sign up for the Story of My Life newsletter. This will ensure you don't miss the beginning of Season 2 or any behind-the-scenes intel. Plus, you'll get a copy of my great-grandma Bomley's sugar cookie recipe. Listening is one of the best gifts a person can give another. Yes, so is food. That's www.storyofmylifepod.com. And if you'd be so kind please rate and review Story of My Life on iTunes. It pushes the show up in search rankings and helps people find it. Need instructions on how to review podcasts in iTunes? I've added them to the website. Finally, if you like this podcast, tell your friends. Then tell them how to find it. Listeners run this machine. That's you. Hearing from and meeting our guests and sharing good conversation with you is among my life's greatest gifts. So thank you. You'll hear from me again soon. So what do you do when you're not at work? Well, I read. I do what housework has to be done. 
wash and iron and cook and change sheets and and go to the grocery spend a lot of time reading because I like to read but I can't I can't read as much as my eyes get tired now mm-hmm. now are you a library lady Kindle gal How no you- no I like a book okay. I want a book I want something I can hold and um, and but I will take a, a paperback, and especially if you're traveling, that's easier to handle. But no, I, I've never. I, I don't want a Kindle. I, I'm afraid that somewhere down the road they're going to quit publishing books, and I think that'd be a sin. <laughs> um, no, I, I I can't. I, I I couldn't handle that. I know a lot of people don't read anymore, mm-hmm. but. Uh, yeah, I get about I get about three books every two weeks at the library. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if it's a, something I can't find that I want to read, that's not the library. I'll go to the bookstore and buy it. But uh, yeah, I couldn't afford to go buy that many yeah, books. Yeah, well, books. you're at a fast rate. Well, books are almost thirty dollars a piece, and and yeah, so times have changed. You used to be able to get a good book for five or six dollars. Oh wow! Yeah, I have well, you used to get bass for a nickel a gallon too, but <laughs> but those days are gone forever. <laughs> now you're making me sad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm a book reader, and that's I feel like either the library or you know the bookstores get all my extra cash because it's like one book, like you said, is thirty dollars easily. Oh yeah, yeah. Twenty-seven ninety-five. Oh yeah, there none of them. Uh, that's why sometimes I, if I see something I want to read that's a paperback, I'll snap it up because maybe it's only. And they used to, paperbacks used to be two or three dollars, and now they're fourteen. <laughs> so, I yeah. mean, but I started work and I made less than three dollars an hour, oh, wow. and now I make seventeen. So yeah, <laughs> so I mean it. it you know, it figures. It's Things are just, everything's on a different scale. Not only is Charlotte a Kentucky Wildcats fan, she's also a self-proclaimed cat person. I've got two cats, and uh, I've had five at one time, and two dogs, but uh, <laughs> you know how it is. You have your animals as long as you can keep them, and when they're gone, then you, somebody knows you need a cat, they'll find a cat for you. And it's, um, and I'm kind of a cat person. And it's her love of cats that reminds her of her other great passion outside work, globe trotting. No dogs right at the moment because I have traveled. Oh, my daughter has taken me on some fabulous trips. My daughter thought she ought to broaden my life. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time I was, that's when I was about, I think I was 79 or 80. Anyway, but she decided I, she, she travels in her job a lot. And she thought that I would enjoy traveling. And my husband was in a nursing home at the time. Uh, and really, he, his quality of life had gone down. And so she decided that, where would I like to go? And I said, oh, I'd like to go maybe Africa, somewhere. And she says, okay. So she took me to South Africa. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know. <laughs> I never figured. I hadn't really been out of this area uh, of Kentucky and 
Tennessee and Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> and, so this was your first big trip was to South Africa? Yeah. And that's 19 hours on a plane. And, and I enjoyed it. <laughs> and uh, it was a great trip. And, I mean, you know, I just enjoyed every minute of it. Well, the next year she took me to Santa Fe because she'd bought, a, uh, she'd bought some land out there and built a house out there. And we went to Santa Fe. So it's been kind of, you go to on a fabulous trip, and then you go to one that's not quite so fabulous, but it's very relaxing. So then the next year, she took me to Australia, South Africa, Santa Fe, Australia. Well, that's a 24, 21 <laughs> <laughs> hours on, on the plane, but I, I still liked it. And we saw, that's a fabulous place. I mean, that's so big. So I've never been there. What is Australia? What did you like about it? What did you do? Well, we went to three different areas, and and it's like going to the United States. There's lots that you don't see. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't. We were there nine days, but you still didn't see. We went to what they call the Barossa Valley, where is the wine country, and um, and it was almost like. Kentucky country. I mean, there was vineyards, and but they had racetracks, and they had. I mean, you know, it was, it was um, not too different. And then we went to Ayers Rock, which is right. It's out in in the outback, and it's just this great, huge, big red rock that's out there in the middle of nothing. It was an experience, and um, then uh, we went to. Um, Sydney, we spent two or three days in Sydney, and we went to what they call a Blue Mountain, which is just where the life is on it. It's not really blue, but okay. but it it was just great. But we didn't go to the very reach. But they tell me that that's a very expensive. You paid several hundred dollars to go out on a boat <laughs> to oh. see there. So, but anyway, but um, if I went back, I'd rather go back to. South Africa then back for a third to, time. Yeah, then because the animals there are just great. So, I mean, what are your favorite things you saw in South Africa, and what surprised you there? Well, I think the fact that you get in the Land Rover to go out on the safari, you go out and and you're in this big old truck like, and the animals don't pay an inch to you at all. You can get right in the middle of a herd of elephants, and they, you know, it's just like you're another animal. They, they, you're right in the midst, and you can see a, uh, lions, and and they'll walk right past you. I mean, you know, if you put your hand out, you could almost touch them, but of course you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and the monkeys in the trees, you know, zebras, giraffes, and every. Everything that you think about a mongoose, <laughs> and it's it's just it's it's just fabulous. Yeah, and we saw a lot of weird things in Australia too because they've got all those things that they have there. But they were more or less, less in zoo oh, okay. zoos. You didn't the the kangaroos were out in a just in a great big field like cattle. Oh, but uh, the. And then they had a baby kangaroo that at the place where we stayed. At, but the mother had gotten killed by a car, and they were raising it at the, at the uh, motel where we stayed. And I got to carry hold that. They had it in a pillowcase, and you got to carry. That. <laughs> yeah, and it would you know, 
um, it's it's the animals. That's that's what really made the trips to South Africa and to Australia is just seeing the different. Uh, and the people in Australia are so friendly. They're they're like Kentuckians. Charlotte has also traveled through France on a barge, hiked in South Africa, rafted the Snake River, visited Palm Springs, been to Italy, and gone back to South Africa to go whale watching and see penguins. What is your proudest accomplishment in life so far? Well, I guess the thing thing I'm most proud of is that I've raised four children, and none of them been in prison, and... (laughs) They're they're all of them solid citizens, and I think that's probably the only thing I my only claim to fame. <laughs> what do you hope for your children and your great grandchildren, and what makes you most optimistic for the future? Well, I just want them to be happy and healthy and be solid citizens and not go into politics. <laughs> What has been the biggest challenge in your life or the hardest thing in your life so far? I think the the decline in my husband's health was um, probably a disappointment, you know. But that happens to every, you know, that's not something that doesn't happen to other people too. You know, I, I, I don't know of anything that's really... of anything that's really I'm disappointed in you know I, I, life's been good to me I'm not I, I stay pretty even keel <laughs> so but with a little prodding Charlotte opened up about her life's greatest tragedy and I loved to dance when I was and I married a guy that didn't dance Oh, sad. Yeah. Now that's probably the saddest. <laughs> oh, me. If you could go back and give yourself advice when you were about 40 years old, what would it be? Or or would you? I don't know that I'd do anything differently than I have. You know, you take things as they come, and you do the best you can with what you, what you have. And uh, I had a co-worker that said we were the luckiest people because we had enough that we never worried about whether we had a we always had a roof over our heads and we had plenty of food and clothing but we weren't able to give our children everything they asked for but we gave them everything they needed and I think that is um, I think that's all you can really ask uh, it, I, I, and I don't think I'd ever ask for anything more and I think probably we get are lucky because I think you can ruin people by overindulging them if that makes any sense oh I think it makes lots of sense what has surprised you most about your own life if you were telling your you know 10 year old self what your life was going to be <laughs> I'm just surprised I'm still here <laughs> and finally I know that you said you don't have any secrets to happiness or health. Do you think that there's been anything that's allowed you, besides just, you know, luck of the draw, to be so active? And and do you, is it just standing all day for your job, or do you do other exercise? I don't do any exercises or yogas. I don't meditate or don't do any of that stuff. But I, uh, 
my mother's family were long lived. My mother lived to be 93. My grandfather was 98. Um, on her side of the family, they're long lived. The other side of my family was not so long. I don't think there's anything other than just the luck of the draw, you know, and, and the fact that I do get up every morning. <laughs> I don't sit around and mope. As Charlotte walks me out, she says she hasn't thought this much about herself in a long time. I believe her. And I think maybe if there is any such thing, this is her true secret to happiness. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that we haven't? I feel like I've asked you a lot of questions, but is there anything? You've asked me things I didn't know I knew. Story of My Life is brought to you from beautiful East Tennessee. I hope you've enjoyed season one. Subscribe on your favorite podcaster so you don't miss an episode. To see photos of Charlotte, get her book recommendations, and sign up for our newsletter, visit www.storyofmylifepod.com. Do you know, or are you, someone who should be on the show in season two? Shoot us an email at storyofmylifepod at gmail.com. Share your favorite episode from the season on Facebook. Did I mention Story of My Life now has Facebook? Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Our music, Don't Be Sour, was written by Ali Arendt and is performed by Ali Arendt and Darren Woodleaf. Larry Buchanan designed the Story of My Life logo. Gina Kaysen provided technical assistance. Special thanks for this episode to Mary Nixon and a very special thanks to you. Good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are. stiff this morning and I said well you're 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 getting older and I said well hell I am older